retention is important to me because it's sustainable. And I think so many people are looking at new pipelines and the biggest name or all the foundations that no one has contacts for, and they don't even know how to get into the door. And I'm like, why are we spending so much energy trying to get in front of someone when you have a pipeline, a database full of thousands of people who have given to you before? So they know you, you've won them over at one point. So why not re-engage them? Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Hello, this is Lindsay Simons, your host of the Critting Community for Good podcast. Okay, I just had to play that. I just love that song, Love the One You're With by Crosby, Sills, and Nash. And I played it because the goal here is to get your framework of your mind around loving the one you're with, especially when thinking about fundraising and donor retention. So today's episode is going to be pretty technical in the fundraising space. So if that's not of interest to you, come back next week. For now, I want to share with you all about donor retention, what it is and why it's important. Now, before we get started, I want to acknowledge the echo that you hear. I know that it can be a little bit off-putting, but you see, last week I moved from San Francisco back to my hometown and Colorado. I'm now living in Denver and I'm currently in a totally empty apartment as I await for the movers. I have been sleeping on an air mattress for almost two weeks, but hey, I'm very grateful for that privileged perspective. And apparently movers are coming in the next three to five days. So if you're listening to this and you are having a hard time understanding anything that I say, then just send me a note. Or if you're listening to this and you're not getting my newsletters or show notes to this podcast, ping me and I'll send them over and I'll make sure that you're subscribed. I only send newsletters about twice a month, which is when I release the podcast. Last week, I did not do one because I was moving. And the best way to reach me is using LinkedIn under my name, Lindsay Simons, or on Instagram under the handle of Creating Community for Good Podcast. I am trying to increase my Instagram community. So go ahead and follow me there if you are so inclined, and I will keep things moving. Now, let's begin. Did you know that after the first gift that a donor makes to a nonprofit, data shows that the retention rate is 23%, meaning that they'll give again with a 23% likelihood. But if you get a donor to engage with you and give a gift two times, then the likelihood of them giving again a third and fourth time is 60%. So what that means is for every one donor that you may lose, it's going to take you three to four donors to replace that person. So the idea here about love the one you're with is to really focus on how are you engaging with your current donors? And then I've got a wonderful self-proclaimed millennial who is a big tech nerd. She loves using the CRM technology to maximize her time. She's a one-woman shop as a sole fundraiser for a nonprofit. And she talks about how CRM can help her to automate outreach, update contacts. So she has personalized notes 
And then she can spend most of her time on high value interactions, which means that once she's done that outreach, then she can have a high value interaction once somebody has actually engaged or responded. She can have a phone call, a meeting. She tells a story about how she found somebody who had stopped giving years prior and she did reach out to them and had a coffee with this person who ended up giving 10 times more than they had ever done before. So in this conversation, Ashley shares terrific insights and has a really lovely way of sharing the information that she's learned. And she does it with a lot of joy. She shares that she felt like she didn't get a tremendous amount of mentorship in her earlier days of fundraising. So she is a generous distributor of facts, knowledge, of resources. She and I met on Clubhouse. Shout out to Mike Spear who introduced us. And I think you'll really enjoy this. A few other stats that I think you might find interesting just as you're considering philanthropy and the state of philanthropy. Upon reflection on the 2020 giving, there were many who were concerned the pandemic would depress donations to nonprofits in the US. But in fact, it did increase from 2019 by over 10%, with the overall number of donors growing by 7.3%. Significant increases were seen at all levels of giving, with smaller gifts, less than $250, leading the way, growing with 15.3% compared to the year prior, 2019. Larger gifts, which were qualified as $1,000 gifts or more, increased by 10.4%, while mid-level gifts of $250 to $999 improved by 8%. At the same time, donor retention, our focus for today, is an important benchmark to track, and it decreased. It dropped by 4.3%. Now, what does that tell us? Well, probably that number one Resources were reallocated to emergency relief response organizations. But now that we're in 2021, how are you re-engaging those donors from 2019 who lapsed? How about from 2018? And then what about 2020? Did you discover a new supporter? And how can you continue to cultivate them now and into the future? Shout out to Tim Sarantino, who gave a terrific presentation that I found online after our Clubhouse chat today that was featured on AFP's site and the Fundraising Effectiveness Project. The stats were from 2020 fourth quarter report. Thanks, Tim. One last thing to add before I go and before I introduce our guest, Ashley Dittmar, is that the average donor retention rate hovers around 40 to 45% across all nonprofit sectors. This means that if you have 100 donors that give to your organization, only 40 or 45 of those donors will give again next year. So use this calculation to measure up the number of last year donors giving this year divided by the number of donors last year. Multiply that number by 100, and there you have donor retention. A tip from Ashley is to not calculate the annual donor retention rate at the end of the year, but instead start on day one of the new fiscal year with zero or less than 1% retention. And then watch your deliberate efforts over the course of the year, move more people from lapsed to retained, and the percentage grows slowly over time. This will make your efforts more trackable and exciting as you see the wins throughout the year. This is a great way to engage your fundraisers, your volunteers, and any other staff member who may be helping you in engaging your donors. 
If retention is new to you in terms of your priorities and focus, then after a year or two, you will be gratified by watching your revenue skyrocket, as well as having more sustainable pipeline and more predictable revenue as you engage your donors year over year with automated technology, as well as personalized approach. And that's it for the technical information on donor retention. Now, allow me to introduce to you Ashley Dittmar. Ashley is the Director of Development at Crisis Text Line, where she manages their multi-million dollar philanthropic fundraising effort, engaging a global community to support those who share a similar vision to create an empathetic world where nobody feels alone. Previously, Ashley led development at the Blink Now Foundation, working to create better futures for children and women in Circuit Nepal. During her tenure, Ashley doubled Blink Now's annual revenue and donor retention rates. She also established the organization's first endowment. Tune in to learn more about why Ashley is such a rock star. More in the show notes with her full bio. And now let me introduce you, Ashley. Ashley, thank you for joining me today on Creating Community for Good podcast. And I'm excited to have you. We met via Friends of Friends, Mike Spear, who's also been on the show, and we met at Clubhouse. So we were talking about donor retention and technology. We were talking about how do you maximize technology if you're a small organization or if you're a huge organization. So I want to invite you up to the platform, to the stage and for the podcast, and let's have a friendly conversation about what does it mean to use technology for the good of your donor relationships, especially around retention of donors who are giving to your organization. So retention can be measured by year-over-year continued giving. We can you know, add some of the show notes about how we actually calculate that. But for now, I just wanted to set the stage for technology and for you and allow you to introduce yourself, Ashley. So thank you. Welcome. And let us know your perspective. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to be here and talk to anyone about donor retention and some of the tools that I have found that are really helpful for fundraisers, but also I think overall just for donors to have a better experience with nonprofits. And at the end of the day, I just want people to be giving and giving to places that they love and for them to feel appreciated through that giving. And so if I can help, whether it's peer organizations or other fundraisers or not even fundraisers, just executives at nonprofits that are really trying to find ways to engage in meaningful and authentic and personal ways, any tips I can have and share, I'm happy to. So I'm excited that you asked me to be here and for us to geek out on all things donor retention. I could talk about it all the time. Let me start with like, why are you excited about donor retention? And also as this podcast, the heart of it is creating community for good. So like, what does community even mean to you? And then how does retention play into that? Okay. I think community for me is really a group of people who are bound by or share similar values. So whether that could be a geographic location, like your physical community where you live, or maybe it's a hobby, or it could be a donor group. But everyone is bound by some sort of shared value. And I think in terms of my role and and donors, you're trying to make that community as engaged and strong as possible. And I think a lot of people are just looking at the bottom line and trying to get those revenues, but those revenues are powered by people, not ATMs. And how do we engage with them and have them become lifelong donors? And I think a lot of people just focus that type of engagement on our top tier 
donors, whether they're already giving it a lot or their capacity is to give a lot. And my approach has really been, I think I just stumbled upon it in my earlier part of my career of working more annual giving and those lower level donors. And I just started reaching out to people and people started responding very surprised. They were surprised to hear from me. They felt seen and heard and appreciated and they would share how appreciated they were and that they were so surprised. And I kept thinking, I think I have something here. I think I'm doing something that other people aren't doing. And it really didn't come from some like grand plan or some conference I went to. It just really was connecting and trying to build my own pipeline, my own portfolio. And I never really actually had a mentor either. So even though I always had director of developments or VPs of development on my team, no one was really bringing me into those meetings and letting me shadow them. So I was just kind of doing my own path. And that just felt like genuine, authentic connection, just like I have for my relationships in my life. And I just, it's funny, I don't think there's any real strategy to it. It's just thinking how you want to be engaged with, not only with places that you're investing in, but also just all the relationships in your life, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love it. So you're, you're just speaking from the heart and doing what's a natural way of connecting and bring that to the workspace, which is awesome because we are all humans and it's so important to treat donors as just another human on the street and exactly. relate to them in a friendly and warm way that's really speaking to what they prioritize and what you're trying to do to hopefully shared values and shared mission. So I want to dive into tech. So on, I've heard you talk a lot about how much you love Salesforce and there are efficiencies for how you can create high value touch points that feel very personal and customized, but really they're done in the blink of an eye using technology. So orient me and the team, the listeners to what's your strategy for deploying Salesforce or whatever CRM database there is for efficiencies and connection. I love Salesforce. I feel like I am kind of a sales rep for them at this point. <laughs> and if anyone from Salesforce, you know, want to reach out to me, thank you. You know, I love you guys. Please keep doing everything you're doing. I've worked in other CRMs as well. I just felt like I really got my groove in the same type of work because of Salesforce and really why I think Salesforce is different. And maybe the other CRMs are doing this at this point, but I've been in Salesforce for about six or seven years. So definitely team Salesforce moving forward are their dashboards. So they take the donor information that you have and you can create reports, but you can create these reports that are visual. So visual graphs, bar graphs, line graphs, pie charts, any type of visual that makes sense to represent that data set. And I'm not even a big data person, but I'm a visual person. And so to see you know, to know your database has thousands of people on it, it's really hard to go to that search bar and just like type in a name and figure out what to do. And so these dashboards kind of slice the data and slice those people into little segments that are much easier to understand who they are, what's their engagement with you, and for me to build strategies on how to then make my next move in terms of engagement with them. So specifically, I've created something I call my donor retention dashboard, which is my go-to for everything. I look at it every single day, even though it doesn't change that much every day. I look at it. And it's not only just all of your donors from the last year to this year, 
I also look at donors in different giving levels. So who are your major donors? Who are your annual donors? Who are your mid-level donors? And how are they retained or are they not retained? How many, are there 30 people in that group or are there 3,000 people in that group? I also look at maybe three years of giving because if someone's giving for three years, at this point, you can assume that they know your brand, they love what you do, and they're going to probably give again versus that first time donor that just heard of you. And so sometimes I even focus on if there's 3,000 donors that I have to look at, 150 of them have donated already for the last two years. Let's get that third gift. And that's just because it's going to be easier. It's that lower hanging fruit. And when you're a small shop or even a big shop, but you're a one person, you want to be efficient. And so for me, it's always look who is the easiest to retain. And retention is important to me because it's sustainable. And I think so many people are looking at new pipelines and the biggest name or all the foundations that no one has contacts for, and they don't even know how to get into the door. And I'm like, why are we spending so much energy trying to get in front of someone when you have a pipeline, a database full of thousands of people who have given to you before? So they know you, you've won them over at one point. So why not re-engage them? And the first time I did this actually was six years ago. I was in San Diego, but I found a donor in New York and I was going to visit New York. And I reached out to him and he luckily had the same email. He gave 15 years earlier. It was like a very lapsed donor. And he knew it because when I wrote him a thank you note, he moved like 10 years earlier. So he knew how old it was when I sent him a thank you note after we met up in New York, but we met for coffee. He was a $500 donor. He gave maybe six years in a row and then stopped completely. So he knew the brand enough, even though it was so long ago, that he took my meeting. And he said he gave to all these peer organizations, big, large international, you know, aid type organizations. And he was giving at five and six figure levels and no one has asked him for coffee ever. And so we went to coffee. It was great. I went back to San Diego, wrote him the thank you note, which he then realized it's been that long. And he started giving again at just $5,000. But not only did we retain this person after so many years, but he, you know, 10 times is giving his original gift. And then he still gives to that organization and has increased his giving since. So even though I have since moved on, he's re-engaged. So I just feel like there's a lot of gold in your constituency and just focus there first. Wow. That's awesome. I usually do not go back 15 years. I've never done that far before. Yeah. But you know, if you've got the time and I think, you know, for anybody who's new to the space of fundraising and maybe you're in the role of donor retention or annual gifts or the base of the pyramid, you're, you're trying to engage the community. I think it's a good idea. If you've got a little bit of time, a little bit of flexibility, go back and see if you can dig up any treasure. Now, if you're looking for major gifts or capital campaign, you're probably not going that far, but that's how the whole ecosystem works. And so I think it's a great idea that if you're new or you're just thinking, I've already exhausted all my resources, I've already talked to all my donors, then yeah, give it a, you know, give it a shot and see who might respond. So cool idea. Yeah, that was far back, but because he gave for six years in a row. Yeah, that was an identifier for you. Yeah. Yeah. If it was like a one-time 15 years ago, probably not. Yeah. But yeah, 500 for six years in a row. It could It's a curious treasure hunt. It sounds like it really worked out. I mean, 10x of his giving. And now to have him 
retained again, that's awesome. That's a big win. Congrats on winning him over. Now let's go back to the dashboards because I was really intrigued to hear about how you slice and dice and how you can sort of segment your work, work your plan, plan your work. That's a phrase I love, but going back to thinking about how are you going to approach each group in a different way that feels personalized and relevant. So CRM, there are various CRMs out there. And I know that you have a longstanding history with Salesforce. I happen to love Neon, but I'm all over, you know, all the board. There are a lot of great CRMs out there, love Bloomerang as well. So tell me a little bit about what would you do in the scenario where there's an organization that's moving from either another database or an Excel, which is even more common, and they're trying to level up and get into CRM. So what would be the key elements that you would add from your database, your Excel, and put it into CRM? And then what might be missing that you'd want to make sure are added to have optimal donor retention and donor engagement? So really, all you need is a donor name and some sort of contact information. Okay, baseline information. Baseline and history. Their, their financial history. If you know nothing else, you can start. And that's really because you can craft your first message thoughtfully. And how I do that is through Salesforce has these email templates where you can create your own email. So it looks like I just spent 10 minutes writing this personal email, but it's all templated. And then what I do is I just obviously populate the name and then maybe change the first sentence. But I have four solid ones that I always work with. And I'm not a new organization right now. So this is prime opportunity. And they're moving from Excel files to CRM for the first time. So I know what it feels like. I'm going through it right now, even though I do have CRM experience at previous organizations. And what I'm focusing on is if this is someone's first gift, that's my template. My template's that first gift email. And I'm just saying, thank you so much. I wanted to reach out to you personally. I noticed that this is your first gift. And then in parentheses, I say, please correct me if I'm wrong. Because let's be, it is never 100%. So it invites the person to not be offended if maybe it's their fifth gift or 10th gift. And then I go on to introduce myself as a new employee and just say that I'm so excited to be here to share the impact of their philanthropy, to answer any questions to provide any updates. And really just as a first person, I'm the first director of development at Crisis Text Line, being that first real staff member that's available for our donors. And so I introduce myself. And then again, I just say a quick, we appreciate all that you do and you're making a big difference. I also ask in that template, how did you originally hear about us? So I ask like a probing question. And I get a lot of responses. Again, it's those responses. I never expect to hear from someone. Thank you for reaching out to me. Congratulations on the new job. It's, it's really engaging. And so that's the one template. The second one I have is a second gift or maybe a third gift. So again, I'm saying, I noticed your continued support. Thank you. And then I have one for monthly donors. And then I have one for multi-year. So someone that's been giving for years and years and years. And because I'm new... That means that I realize that I'm acknowledging them for the first time, even though they've been giving for years and years and years. And so really, you really just need the email or phone number and then the donor history and you can start the conversation. So as long as you have those two things, I think you can start that. And then once you hear back, then I put in the little description field who they are, how they heard about us, what they're passionate about. 
Do they want to hear back? Do they want updates? Do they want me to send an end of year report when it's done? I don't normally do those traditional stewardship, like matrix outreach, which a lot of people do. And what I mean by those are if you go to any like fundraising workshop, and I've talked about this on our clubhouse chat, but there's always this like pyramid. And at the top are the top level donors. And they're, you know, it's a smaller piece at the top. And those people also get the highest priority and the highest engagement and the highest interaction with leadership and events and everything else, right? And the way I've noticed things evolving into higher revenues is if you just flip it. And for me, instead of having the top funders and revenues, look at it as engagement. I want to flip it and have the most people in my entire database be engaged. So a million dollar donor, that might be being on our board or being a volunteer coming to those events. But for a $5 donor, it's receiving one of those templated emails that they think is a personal email, which it is because they respond and then I respond back personally and we start a conversation. And so that takes 45 seconds. So as a fundraiser, you can be efficient and give someone who gives $5 the same level of ICU and I appreciate you as the million dollar donor. And that way you're having the most people engaged in the tip, that little tip at the bottom are the people that never heard from you. And maybe that's just because they gave three bucks and you, you know, there was too much volume and you couldn't do it. But I want to strive for everyone to be feeling like they've been seen when they give. And I think that's going to really drive retention, drive revenues. And my last organization, we went from 25% to 50% donor retention in my three years. And the retention rate second year was around 31%, but 83% of our revenues came from that 31%. So if you're thinking about who do I have to prioritize to make my numbers, to make those goals for us to grow, to hit those capital campaign, to double those revenues, that's where I focus my time. And because it works. That's awesome. So do you have any golden rules that you live by in terms of how much you should be reaching out, how often, how to systematize it? Do you have flags that are unique to each person or do you do batch batch working? I don't do batch working. I wish I could say I have like a certain formula. Like today, it's almost two o'clock. What did I do today? I submitted a $50,000 grant proposal to a foundation. And then I sent about 40 emails to people that gave online from $3 to $1,000. Well, they're templated or they were unique or what? Templated for the original outreach, but then I also have inboxes from my outreach from yesterday. And so I was responding to some of those donors or someone responds that I'm in my inbox and it's the top thing. I just quickly respond. And then I fill in their CRM because I learned a little bit more about them. So I filled out their profile and then I'm here talking to you. But that's like what my normal day, like I feel major donors take a lot of time. Grants take a lot of time. You submit that grant report. I'm not going to hear back from that fund for six weeks, maybe. So what am I doing in those six weeks? I'm not going to be just writing out grants. I mean, grant writers do do that. I'm a single fundraiser on a team, so I can't just focus on one category. And that's why I mix and match throughout the day and reach people when I have 30 minutes between meetings, send out a few of those templated emails, or finally have a donor call if I can get a call with someone. But I'm a millennial and I don't call as much as I probably should. 
(laughs) I want to tell you the phone calls are so underrated. I have a client right now that's like, can't get in touch with this person. I've been trying and trying. I'm like, just why don't you just call them? Like, don't schedule a call. Don't email about a call. Just call. (laughs) And of course she got through. Time is sacred right now. So to get someone's time, I think, you know, one golden rule I do have, which I'm trying to aspire to actually is I try really hard to not walk away from any conversation, meeting or email and say, I wasted that person's time. And to build that rapport and to build that every time Ashley reaches out to me, I know it's, you know, a meaningful dialogue or something that is really valuable to me as the donor. That means every time I'm in their inbox or my phone call goes through, they're going to pick up and they're going to prioritize it. And I'm still not, I haven't mastered it, but that's my vision. And I know that some amazing fundraisers have mastered it. And I think that's so important. And again, that's like being authentic. That's knowing that time is valuable and people want to feel seen and heard and appreciated, but also want to know that if you're pitching them or developing a big relationship, this huge capital campaign is going to take a long time to get to the point of that major, major gift. Make all of those touch points meaningful because it can get easy to not make them meaningful. Let's think about what do you think is the most meaningful touch point? So what, what would you, when you hang up, you're like, okay, I hit these three points. Therefore it was meaningful. What does that look like to you? I think if it's a cultivation and you're trying to understand, it's really understanding why someone's passionate about the cause and what was the incentive to give or their intention to give. Because here's one of my favorite stories. It's, it wasn't on my team, but I heard it maybe through a conference. I don't even remember at this point, but it was a mother and she had three kids and she gave to the local library. I think library is on a lot of people's lists of that's a great cause. I understand why I would give. The development officer was really trying to understand why this woman who's not really wealthy, but gave a major gift of $50,000. And so it took a few touch points and a few meetings to really get there, but she finally opened up and it had nothing to do with this being a community resource. She was in a domestic violence relationship and left in the middle of the night and had nowhere to sleep. And she slept in the library with her three kids. And so like, I still get goosebumps hearing about it. And so I think a meaningful conversation, you're never always going to have a breakthrough, but I think a meaningful conversation where you, you leave and you feel like you know that person better and that you can help connect them to the cause that you're working on in a better way, then that's worth your time. Because at Crisis Text Line, a lot of people understand our service and texting and understand the need and mental health, but we're doing some really amazing work with machine learning or we're about to expand into Spanish, or we're doing a lot of research and working with policy to shape the mental health sector and help with mental health initiatives and programs that will help reduce the need for our service. And so I think you can catch someone and bring them into your larger cause, but when you start really understanding what they're passionate about, if they're a tech person, talk to them about the machine learning, talk about our data. If they're heartfelt, like, let's talk about this. Or if they're bilingual, let's talk about Spanish. So I think that that's what I mean by meaningful. Cool. I love it. So what I'm hearing is, you know, people want to feel heard. They want to feel unique and special. They want to feel appreciated. And then they want to feel lit up in some kind of way. 
right? So you want to inspire that person so that they want to engage further. They want to know more about what does it mean that you're doing AI for bilingual? That's that's really innovative and important. Or what does it mean that you've saved this one woman's life because she had a place that was safe overnight for her and her three children? So yeah, I think those are the touch points that I like to see as well. It's just making that person feel unique and special, offering gratitude and then offering inspiration and, and something that lights them up. And then the future when there's additional opportunities down the line, I'm not coming with our Spanish expansion work when they're really passionate about our equity work in machine learning because there's a slight bias with machine learning. So you're taking notes in your CRM. You know, just like you have one friend that really likes one hobby, another one likes the other. You're not going to invite the person that doesn't like to go fishing and camping to go fishing and camping. You know, you want to bring people Meet them where they are, right? <laughs> exactly. There you go. There you go. So Ashley, what gives you hope and what is sort of jazzing you these days? I mean, it's been a pretty trying year. <laughs> <laughs> it has. And you're in Brooklyn and you've made I'm it. You survived I'm in a studio apartment, but it's beautiful. And I'm so grateful. And, you know, my health and just my family and it's sunny out today and no longer winter. So there's just like some small things to be very hopeful and grateful for. But I've been fundraising since even in high school and I didn't know it was a career. I didn't go to school to be a fundraiser. I didn't know it existed. And I just kind of stumbled into it. Like I think a lot of people do, but I've always been driven by nonprofits and by causes that I care really deeply about. And so it's very fulfilling for me to be able to get paid to do something that I genuinely love to do and to be able to really contribute to the growth of organizations. I always thought I'd be on the program side because once again, I didn't know fundraising was an actual career path. And so there are times where I feel like I wish I was there seeing the work done, meeting with beneficiaries, interacting with the programs face-to-face. But to say, for example, my last organization, we doubled our revenues, we doubled our donor retention. I know I made a lasting impression on that organization. I know that the hundreds of kids and women that benefited from that program and everyone that was employed, I was the only fundraiser, the only frontline person. So there was a lot of pressure that kept me up at night, knowing that everyone's jobs de- like determined on my success, but it's also fulfilling. And I don't know, that gives me hope and that gives me drive. And to know that a lot of people don't love our profession or are scared or intimidated by it. And so that not everyone can do it. And it is tough. It's a lot of people burn out. A lot of people, you know, money, money is a weird thing to talk about and think about all the time and to have conversations with others about. So it's definitely a difficult career path, but I know it's doing good in the world and that makes me like so happy. And to hear so many people have careers that aren't fulfilling, I feel very grateful that I fell into this right out of college and I've been doing it for 10 years. That's great. Well, I'm glad that you find joy in it. There have been some interesting studies from Gallup that talk about quality of life and the importance of having a career that feels fulfilling and that more times than not, I forget what the actual stat was, but I feel like it was 60, 60 to 70% of people who work in the impact space are happy at work and satisfied with their job and see that there's a future for them. So I think that it's really a privilege and an honor to be working in the space of philanthropy and nonprofits and impact work to try to really you know, wake up in the morning and know that what you're doing is having a really 
meaningful impact, not only on others, but hopefully on you if you are driven that way. And for those who are not in the nonprofit space, they're also seeing a lot of gratification and fulfillment in their work. I think that's just as important because in society, we need all types. We need those innovators. We need those people who are, you know, minding the rules. We need those people who are breaking the rules, right? So we need all types, but it is so important that you do find joy in what you're doing, no matter what it is. So long as it's not harming, you know, in my belief, you know, so long as you're not harming somebody, then go and do things that are, that make you happy because a happier you is a happier us. So I'm happy that you are happy and satisfied. And um, yeah, I definitely want to encourage people to get into the space of fundraising and nonprofits because it can be a lot of fun. But yeah, it is trying because there's a lot of you know, expectations of performance and limited resources and you know agility. But I think that if you get into it and you have fun with it, then rock it and you know come and call Ashley or me and talk about a career in, in fundraising because I find it's a lot of joy. And something I'd recommend to you, Ashley, or anybody else who might be sharing your sentiments of, you know, it is awkward to talk about money sometimes. There's somebody who was on my podcast recently, Jen Risher, and she talks all about wealth. And she came from, you know, an average family, average socioeconomic status, and then came into the ultra high net wealth. But she talks a lot about like, how do we take the power out of money? And how do we make money more of like a conduit of energy, which is sort of my belief system. And so it's just another good one. It's a great book or listen to the podcast if you want like the shorter version, but I enjoyed that. And it's the book's called We Need to Talk by Jen Risher. Shout out to her because she's just an awesome, awesome person. So then my final question for you, Ashley, before I let you go, is there one organization or cause or mentor person that you want to shine the light on right now since you've got the mic? I feel like as I grow and evolve, who I am inspired by and the organizations that I am inspired by grow and evolve. Maybe five years ago, I wasn't looking at the diversity and leadership as I do today or how I think localized programming and really empowering that local community to do the work is so sustainable and what needs to happen versus maybe 10 years ago when I first got into this sector in this industry. So it's hard to just say one person, but the person that's coming to mind right now is Stacey Abrams, actually, for me. And that's because she's fighting the great fight for everyone to have their voice in terms of voting. And I think I think she's elected or for a Nobel Peace Prize, not elected, but nominated. And she's just amazing. I think she's so intelligent. She's so smart. Her mission's fantastic. And she is really changing not only an industry of, you know, voting rights, but really the country and how we look, look on something so fundamental for so many of us that we, a lot of us have had the privilege of never thinking that other people didn't have the privilege to vote and all those limitations and barriers that some Americans have. And so she's great. If you haven't checked her out, follow her, follow her organization, Fair Fight. They're amazing. All right. I can echo that and support that. Absolutely. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for being on Creating Community for Good today and sharing your insights about donor retention and also just your journey as a fundraiser and somebody who's in the trenches, as we like to say. So thanks for being honest and real. And I hope that this provides a lot of insight and value to you who are listening. And um, actually, I'll catch you on 
Clubhouse another time on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific and the 11 Eastern. But anybody and everybody who's listening, trying to keep that as a regular time with different topics and to just jump in and have conversations about what's going on in the space. Well, thank you, Lindsay, so much for having me. Anytime I can talk about this work, it brings me joy and I hope it's somewhat value for, for those who are listening. So thanks so much. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you and we appreciate you. See ya. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode about donor retention with Ashley Dittmar. I hope you learned something new. I'm curious to hear, are you currently using Excel, Salesforce, Neon One, Bloomerang, or Razor's Edge or something else? Send me a note on LinkedIn or on Instagram and let me know. I'm going to do a tally and I'm curious to hear. If you liked what you heard, then let me know that as well. I'm new to podcasting and I just celebrated one year. Soon I'll be doing a reflection on the year's learnings. For now, find me on LinkedIn or the Apple podcast. And if you haven't done so yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If you're curious about a topic and want to be a guest, then let's connect. Go to www.creatingcommunityforgood.com. Shine on. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.